welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is a blessing to be with you this morning. Um, as we work our way through the book of Genesis, uh, we run into some interesting stories, some stories that were like, we're not going to tell these ones as bedtime stories. Uh, we've run into one of those this morning, and I'm hoping that together as we work our way through the story and how it fits in the story of redemption, the whole Bible, um, hopefully as Christians, we're able to walk away with hope and joy and faith and confidence in our God who is not swayed and and distracted by the sinfulness of man, but instead that he will bring about his purposes on the earth and in the new heavens and the new earth hereafter. So with that in mind, let's turn to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to begin in uh, verse 18. And uh, as we as we turn here, um, so we'll make sure Thanks, Josh. Um, we just a reminder that over the past two Sundays, we have focused on this historical account of the global flood of Noah's day recorded for us in Genesis. Nearly 2,000 years of humanity passed between Adam and the flood. And all the while leading up to the flood, corruption spread throughout the earth through humanity. People, as they increased and spread across the earth, they also spread corruption. Genesis emphasizes through this flood narrative a decreation. This is something we've looked at in previous week, weeks. A decreation where humanity and animals, which have multiplied upon the earth, are washed away. It's this cleansing almost. It's almost as if the earth is re being returned to its formless and void condition that we studied on the first day of creation. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, that's the way the earth is described, formless and void. There was water upon the face of the earth. So now in the flood, the waters below and the waters above come crashing together again, and the earth becomes this dark, chaotic ocean once more. But then... We see in Genesis 8, verse 1, that God remembered Noah and his family on the ark. And out of the chaotic waters of the destruction of the flood, God establishes a new beginning. This is what we looked at last week. Last week we studied the conditions of this new beginning where God makes a promise to every living creature saying in Genesis 9, verse 11, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God hangs His bow, what we call a rainbow in the sky, as a sign of His promise, saying to Noah and his sons, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. These are the same words spoken to Adam and Eve at the very beginning, and now this divine these divine words of blessing are spoken over the eight humans who come out of the ark after the flood into this new beginning. There must have been so much hope for this new generation. After all, the sons of Cain, which we studied, not such a great 
people group, the sons of Cain were all gone. Only Noah and his family survived, and they belonged to the God-fearing line of Seth. Would Noah and his family fear and obey God? Could Noah be the father of a better generation which never fell into the way of Cain? Could Noah be what Adam was not? The father of a holy people who worked and kept the earth as image bearers of God. This is the theme we will focus on um, this morning. Was Noah the better Adam humanity desperately needed? Was Adam the one who would defeat the serpent and bring relief to humanity from the curse? With this question in mind, let's look at Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, and we'll read through verse 28 together. Several years have passed since the flood, and Noah's family has begun to increase. Things seem to be going well for the first family in this new beginning, but then we read this story. Chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And ask him um, to open our hearts. To see what he is doing in the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I I thank you that we can trust you, that this is from you. This is not the imagination of men, but that this is your inspired word breathed out by God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have our confidence in you and not in the wisdom of men. Lord, help us not to shy away from any portion of scripture, but instead to dive into your word that we might know the wisdom of God, that we might see how humanity is fallen. But our God is great. Humanity is lost, but our God is a saving God. Lord, I pray that this would become evident this morning and that we would leave here today rejoicing in you and who you are and what you have accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis clearly paints Noah as a type of Adam or in some ways as a second Adam. When Noah is born, his father Lamech said to him, Out of the ground, said of him, sorry, said of him, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, speaking of Noah, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That's in Genesis 5. 
Lamech names him Noah because Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. From his birth, there was hope that Noah would be the one to bring humanity relief from the curse. Then Genesis 6-9 evokes images of the Garden of Eden when it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. This language of walking with God is intended to demonstrate the closeness of Noah's relationship to the unapproachable God. Almost as if he was like Adam in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Because remember, God walked in the garden with them before the fall. Then after the flood, Noah is left as the father of all peoples, resembling Adam. All humanity is now directly descended from Noah. He is the patriarch all peoples can point to as their ancestor. Then in Genesis 9, 1-2, through 2, Noah is again compared to Adam when God gives Noah the same commission that he gave to Adam, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, followed immediately by a command about, about having dominion over the animals. These all mirror the commands given to Adam about multiplication, dominion, and ruling the earth as God's representative. Noah had found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah did walk with God, and he was a man of faith in a corrupt and violent generation. After nearly 2,000 years of human depravity and suffering, Noah, would Noah be the second Adam who defeated the serpent's temptations, who brought rest to the holy people of God? Surely, if we were reading Genesis for the first time, we might be asking that question But as we saw in this short story about Noah and his family in chapter 9 that we just read, the Scriptures ultimately answer that question with no. Noah could not defeat the serpent. And he could not produce a holy people for God. Why? After the eradication of the line of Cain, why couldn't the God-fearing line of Noah produce a holy people set apart unto God? The reason is because corruption survived on the ark. Corruption survived on the ark. Corruption survived in the hearts of Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. And as they stepped off the ark, the curse of sin and death followed them into this new beginning as if nothing had changed. And sadly, the scriptures go on to continue the comparison of Noah to the first Adam. Noah is depicted as similar to Adam in chapter 9, verse 20. He's said to be a a man of the soil. Adam was made from the soil. Noah planted a vineyard. God planted a garden for Adam. Noah drinks the fruit of the vine. Adam eats the fruit from the garden. Nothing's wrong with this picture so far, but then in verse 21 it says, Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. This again pictures Adam. Adam also sinned through a piece of fruit and then uncovered his own nakedness. Adam was forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and when he rebelled against God and ate the fruit, his eyes were opened and he realized that he was naked. Adam brought the shame of his own nakedness upon himself. 
And in a similar way, Noah, acting foolishly, becomes drunk with wine. And in his chemically controlled foolishness, he unclothes himself and passes out in a somewhat public area. Now you have to remember, Noah's family all lived, worked, socialized, and slept in tents. During, the day, during that day, a tent was more of a house than just a bedroom. So for Noah to pass out during the day, to pass out drunk in his tent, would be like a person today passing out drunk on the floor of their living room with the front door to their house standing wide open. That's really what, it would be compared, what you'd have to compare it to today. So what we're seeing in the story is that corruption has survived on the ark. It survived in the heart of Noah. This man is over 600 years old. Two-thirds of his life is behind him. In today's lifespan, he would be a godly 60-year-old father and husband who is now lying passed out, uncovered on the living room floor during the middle of the day. This man was not perfect. He carried terrible memories of humanity's corruption and violence before the flood, and I imagine he experienced the nightmares of his neighbors and extended family who had tried to cling to the outside of the ark as the floodwaters rose, but they drowned. Now, in his old age, with all of these terrible memories, with the struggles of his life, now in his old age, Noah is tempted to drunkenness. Even this man who we, we know is a godly man. We know he's called blameless and righteous in a crooked generation. But even Noah is tempted in his old age to drunkenness. Ultimately, Noah could not be the savior of humanity. Because Noah himself was in need of saving from the curse of sin and death. But the story doesn't end there. Noah's comparison to Adam continues. The scriptures highlight that there were three sons of Adam. Now, we do believe there were more than that, but the scriptures highlight three of Adam's sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Two were righteous, Abel and Seth, but Cain belonged to the evil one. We saw that in 1 John chapter 3. Now, in this new beginning with Noah, he also has three sons. Two seem righteous, but one commits evil. In chapter 9, verse 22, we're told that as Noah lay passed out, uncovered in his tent, that his youngest son, Ham, sees his father in this humiliating condition. Again, putting this in today's context, this would be like an adult son dropping by his godly 60-year-old father's house, and finding the front door standing open, he walks inside and sees his father passed out drunk, lying uncovered on his living room floor. What do you do for your aged father when he has acted foolishly and exposed himself to ridicule and shame? There's a very clear emphasis throughout Scripture on the divine expectation God's expectation that children, even adult children, show honor to their parents. Adult children aren't expected to obey like a child, and they don't always have to agree with their parents, and sometimes you may not even like your parents in a specific moment of time, but there is a steady stream of biblical admonitions for a son or a daughter to honor and respect their parents. 
They are to honor and respect the God-given position that a parent has in their life. For example, Exodus 20, verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then Jesus in the New Testament takes this command and applies it to a bunch of grown men sitting around listening to him teach. Leviticus 19, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 27, Cursed is by be anyone who dishonors his father or mother. Proverbs 20, If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter, utter darkness. Proverbs 23, Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. I realize modern culture emphasizes autonomy and individualism to the extreme. But when we look at the word, it becomes evident that our culture has in many ways encouraged us to forsake God's divine expectation that we honor father and mother. Biblically, adult children are to honor their parents even when we do not agree with them and even when our parents' flaws are exposed. And they will be. They will be exposed as you grow older. Looking at this account of Noah's family, we see the natural response of Ham. The natural response of Ham to his father's drunken shame when his father's weakness, fallenness, brokenness is exposed to the family. Ham sees his father and then what does he do? The passage tells us that he increases his father's shame by leaving him there and then going outside to tell his two brothers. This account is short, to the point, with little detail. We don't have a lot to go on. But it seems clear from the context that Ham has not honored his father by his actions. Instead, by leaving Noah there and running outside to tell his brothers, Ham is most likely mocking his father publicly to the family. Ham had the opportunity to cover his father's shame, like God covered the shame of Adam and Eve after their fall. Ham had the opportunity to do that, but instead he exposed it to the whole family. Instead of saying in his heart with compassion, Father, what happened? What happened? Instead of this, he has said by his actions, Hey guys, come see this old fool. In today's context, this would be like finding your godly 60-year-old father on the living room floor, passed out drunk, but instead of helping him, instead of putting on the coffee, turning on a hot shower, instead of doing this and seeking to honor and cover the shame, Instead of this, you take a photo of him and then send it to your brothers on WhatsApp so you can all have a laugh at his expense. This is what I believe the passage in context is telling us is happening in this culture and in their society and their home. Noah had acted foolishly, but Ham's sin wasn't publicly humiliating his father and dishonoring him rather than showing compassion. Continuing with the story, his brothers Shem and Japheth seem to realize that Ham has acted with dishonor and they go to great lengths to honor their father even though Noah was in the wrong. Shem and Japheth walk backward into the tent 
with a garment in order to cover their father's shame without further humiliating him. The passage repeats several times. It's trying to emphasize to us that they honored him, that the two sons went to great lengths to honor their father in this situation and not to increase his shame. Then when Noah wakes up and finds out what Ham has done and how how he has increased his shame rather than covering him, something happens, something unexpected happens in the midst of this broken family story. Something happens. In the midst of this broken family, in this messed up story, when it begins to become clear that Noah's family has brought corruption with them out of the ark into this new beginning, into this new cleansed world, in this moment, in this very moment, God steps in and speaks through humiliated Noah. Noah speaks a prophetic curse and a blessing that he could not have begun to comprehend. God uses this sad moment in Noah's family to reveal what would come to pass a thousand years later in the land of Canaan. Noah first speaks a prophetic curse, but it's not on Ham. It's not on the son who had humiliated him. Instead, he speaks a curse on Ham's youngest son, Canaan, saying in Genesis 9.25, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He won't just be a servant to his brothers, but he is going to be the servant of his brother's servants. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Again, he speaks a blessing on Shem. He's saying, The Lord, he is your is the God of Shem. The, the Lord is your God. Let Canaan be your servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. From a human perspective, Noah's words seem harsh and even unjust. Why curse Canaan, a seemingly random grandson of Noah? So this is just one of several grandsons and Ham had several sons. So he could have, it seems almost random. Why do this if Ham was the real culprit. The only way to explain Noah's words without extreme speculation is to acknowledge that the Spirit of God is speaking through Noah this prophetic curse on the line of Canaan, while at the same time speaking a prophetic blessing on the line of Shem. And then speaking of Japheth, that as Japheth dwells in the tents of Shem, he will also receive the blessing. God is giving his people a glimpse of how God, how he is going to save them from sin and death. Let's let's examine how this story, this account fits into the story of redemption, the whole story of the Bible. Immediately after this story, so we're looking at what comes immediately next in chapter 10. We see a list of descendants. So this is a genealogy. And many times when you're doing your Bible reading, if you hit one of these, it's just like, it's got to make it through today. I understand. It's like, I'm not reading it this morning because I'm not going to embarrass myself as I try to pronounce the names in front of you. But as you run into this genealogy, we see that Canaan goes on to father a multitude of people. And they move into an area in the Middle East that is eventually called the land of Canaan. 
They settle this land, and as they settle it, they fill it with corruption and violence, just like before the flood. But then after 400 years, God calls Abram, a descendant of Shem, and tells him to leave his father's home and travel to this land, the land of Canaan. And when Abram gets there, God appears to him and says in Genesis 12, to your offspring, I will give this land. Notice, God is saying to a descendant of Shem, to your offspring, God is going to give this land, the land of Canaan. Abram did not see this happen himself, but roughly 500 years after this promise, Abram's descendants, who are now called the nation of Israel, or the descendants of Israel, they walk out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground, on their way where? Where are they going after they go to the mountain? They go, they're on their way to the land of Canaan. These descendants of Shem are God's chosen people. They are the people of God heading to a land where God has promised to dwell with them. Or another way of saying it is to walk with them, to live with them. That was their hope, that there was a land they were going to where God says, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to dwell with you here. Remember Noah's prophetic blessing on Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. This is a prophecy of what God has planned to do. God is going to take the nation of Israel, who remember, they've become slaves in Egypt. They are slaves in Egypt. God is going to take these slaves out of Egypt and and into a land of giants and fortresses. And God is going to give that land to them as their possession. And why does he do that? Well, the scriptures point to it over and over again that he is doing all these things, all of it, for his glory and for the salvation of his people. Throughout the Old Testament, we will see this theme repeated. God is preparing a people and a land A chosen line in a holy city where the seed of the woman that we learned about all the way back in Genesis several chapters ago. He is going to bring the promised seed of the woman who, who would come and save his people from sin and death. All to the praise of the glory of God. Even in this story of corruption in Noah's family, God is revealing that He is going to work through the line of Shem in order to bring about His glory through saving His people. God will save His people. We saw earlier that Noah was not the seed of the woman that was promised or the better Adam who would save His people from sin and death. Instead, Noah himself was in need of saving, just like Adam. Noah was a sinner who clung to the promises of God by faith for salvation. He could not save himself, and he could not save others. And none of us can do this either. None of us can save ourselves, and none of us can save our children. 
our loved ones, our spouse. We can speak the word of truth to them, but only God can save. Only Jesus Christ could save his people from their sins. 2,000 years later in the gospel according to Luke, 2,000 years after Noah, we, we, we are given uh, this insight into history. Luke writes of the genealogy of Jesus and in the line of Jesus, uh, he, he writes of the genealogy of Jesus going all the way back. And in this line of Jesus, we see these words, the son of Shem, the son of Noah. The New Testament writers clearly reveal that Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman, the second and better Adam, the descendant of Shem, who would defeat the serpent and save his people from sin and death. The story of redemption is not an accident. The Bible is not a series of sticky situations which God is forced to react to as if his plan of salvation is about to fall apart or if he's just trying to struggle with humanity to keep his plan together. That is not the story of the Bible. The story of redemption is his story for his glory and he will accomplish his purpose on the earth. And he's revealed what his purpose is to us. In Revelation 7, we read this, that he will have a, a redeemed people from all tribes and peoples and languages who stand before his throne crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Speaking of Jesus Christ, salvation belonged to them. All glory be to him. And this is only possible because there was no corruption found in Jesus. Unlike Adam, we've read and studied his story. Unlike Noah, which we're hearing about some of the corruption in him and his own family, unlike them, Jesus was without sin and therefore he was not in need of saving. And because he was not in need of saving, because he was the perfect human being, and because he was God, the one who had been sinned against by humanity, because of this, Jesus could be the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. He could and he did save his people from their sins. And he exchanged the deserved death, the death we deserve, he exchanged that for eternal life for all who come to him in faith. This is God's good news to all who cling to his promises by faith. He has accomplished salvation for his people and he has opened the door wide to all people. Yes, the Savior came through Shem. This was God's plan to bring about salvation. But he has now opened the door through Jesus for salvation for all who call upon the name of the Lord to save them. Passages like Galatians 3 encourage all people to come to faith, saying, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and he is emphasizing that it doesn't matter who your parents were, what your bloodline was. It doesn't matter if you can count your 
descendants all the way back to Shem, it no longer matters because Jesus Christ has opened the door to all. And I believe the same good news to the Gentiles is hinted at in the prophetic blessing spoken by Noah all the way back in Genesis 9. Let's look at this. Remember, Noah also blessed Japheth, saying, and, and, and Japheth, he's not of Shem. His family has nothing to do with the line of Jesus or Israel. He would be considered in Jesus' time to be the father of the Gentiles, those outside the temple, those who could only approach God so close that they couldn't come as close as a Jew. See what, what Noah says here. He says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. The blessing on Japheth is dependent upon his dwelling in the tents of Shem. And in the New Testament, it is revealed that the Gentiles, those previously outside the covenant, those who could only come so close to God, that they are now welcomed into the new covenant relationship with God as they believe upon the crucified Jesus. Yes, a descendant of Shem, but the New Testament makes it very clear that God has opened up the new covenant to all. To all. There is no longer a, a second-class citizen in the family of God. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. God has opened the door to all. All those who come to Jesus by faith are included in the new covenant between God and His people and enjoy full adoption into this family. But there's also a warning in this. Because all those who reject Jesus, God's way of saving His people, the way, all those who reject Jesus are excluded from the new covenant and receive the curse of Canaan. They will be crushed by the conquering Jesus when he returns in judgment. So with both this great news and this warning, I call to all of us, whether you are a believer now or if you are on the edge of doubt and you're wavering, I call all of you and myself also to cling to Jesus in faith today. If you are in sin, turn from your sin. It is not worth receiving the curse of Canaan. Turn from your sins and follow Him. Love Him. Live for Him. Look for Him. For He is coming soon. Let's pray together. And then we will remember Him together through communion. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. Thank you, Lord, that your spirit is powerful. It is powerful to save and to convict. And I pray, Lord, that the spirit of God would be going out this morning and would be accomplishing your will through those gathered here. Father, thank you for communion, how we have this time of remembrance where we remember Jesus, his sacrifice for us and what he has accomplished for all those who come to him by faith. Lord, I pray that no one would leave here today 
still rejecting Jesus, still still in unbelief, but instead, Lord, that the Spirit of God would, would go into each heart and that dead hearts, hearts of stone would be made of life, would be made alive, that they'd begin to beat and to feel and to love the Lord for all you have done and all you will do for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.